in the series of Nehemiah, you know, anytime a church is, is anticipating, looking toward, leaning toward, or maybe a church is in the middle of a building campaign, they're building buildings as well as church, that somewhere in there, there's going to be a series on Nehemiah. It's just, I think it's somewhere in the church manuals. I don't know, but, but Nehemiah is going to come up. Uh, and uh, so we, we're in the book of Nehemiah, but Nehemiah is not merely about building a structure. Nehemiah is not a book about building a wall. Nehemiah is a book about building God's people. And the wall is simply the opportunity that God uses to build God's people for his purposes for them. He uses the wall. The wall is part of his purpose. And the wall is going to continue to be used as part of that city of Jerusalem out of which God's people are going to make his glory known to the nations round about him. So the wall is important like buildings are important. And yet God is doing something bigger than that wall or that building. God is building a people. I can prove that because the wall is done in chapter 6. And yet we go on in Nehemiah to chapter 13. There's a whole lot more people building going on even after the wall is finished. God is building his people. And in the midst of building, what we've seen, if we track through Nehemiah, what we've seen in chapter 3, for instance, is everybody joins in together. There is a part for each one, each person in their own part. People that you wouldn't even think, uh, goldsmiths and perfumers, those who made the incense for the temple, the priests who did the offerings for the temple. Each one had a place in the wall that they also could build. Didn't think you had skills for that. That's okay. There's a way to help. There's a way to join in. There's a way to serve in building as God is building. So everybody joins in. Families join in and build together. We saw that in chapter 3. In chapter 4, we saw that when God's people unite together in the work that God has given them together to do, did you get all that? That That's a long sentence. When God's people join together in the work that God has given them to do, there will be opposition. The enemy is not going to like it. The enemy is going to oppose it. And so we see that in chapter 4. That first of all, it's just mocking and insults. And when that doesn't work and the, and the, the work that God has given them continues and progresses, the opposition ramps up even higher. And now it becomes threats and even danger that they have to take action against. They have to, they have to take care to, to um, look after those who are doing the work. And they are building with with one hand in the work and one hand on the sword at the ready to defend themselves and others and to rally together to the place wherever an attack might come and they will rally and support one another. But But the problem comes is that the enemy will not only use external factors. The enemy will not only use opposition that comes from outside in order to disrupt the work that God is doing among us, with us together. The enemy will also, in fact, he delights to use our own weaknesses against us. The enemy will use our weaknesses in causing ourselves individually to be perhaps distractions or even obstacles to that work that he is doing in the midst of his people. And that's what we see in Nehemiah chapter 5. That there are distractions, there are obstacles that come up in the midst of the work, and yet Nehemiah resolves that, restores that in really a surprising turn. A turn that we see the obstacles actually have the chance to become opportunities, opportunities of God's grace. 
Because you've been there at one time or another. You found yourself as you were carrying along, as you were trying to get by as best you could, uh, functioning in ways normal in the world, but actually contrary to God's way. And you found yourself along the way. You went this way when God's will was that way, and you found yourself now a distraction to others. Maybe a distraction at best. Maybe, maybe an obstacle to others and the spiritual growth of others at worst. Well, what happens then? You, you might be confronted. You might be corrected. You can certainly be forgiven in God's grace. But where do you participate in the building now? Where will you be from there in that work that God is doing? Are you relegated now to the background? Are you always kind of sidelined to the margins at this point? No longer able to be in the, in the center of God's blessing and the work that he is doing? Well, there are consequences to sin. And yet, we see in Nehemiah chapter 5 that those whose self-serving actions had become not merely a distraction, but a huge obstacle to what God was doing among his people. That there was actually an opportunity for them to lean not only to receive God's forgiveness, not only to repent, to receive God's restoration, but actually there was an opportunity for them to become examples, models of God's grace, even an example for Nehemiah himself. It's a surprising turn where or obstacles become opportunities, and that's what I want us to see in Nehemiah chapter 5, because there's going to be times when I'm a distraction to somebody else. There's going to be a time when what you've done might be an obstacle, and you think, how can, how can this ever be recovered? How can this ever come to the point where it's no longer in the way of somebody else's believing in faith or continuing in faith? I have blown it so badly that I will always be an obstacle to another. And yet, what if God's grace could be so displayed in you and through you that that obstacle that sin caused becomes an opportunity for God's grace to be all the more known? That's what I want to see in, in um, Nehemiah chapter 5. But first, let's just get into the realities of it. The stuff of life does happen. In the first five verses, we're going to find that, yes, there were some hungry people. Please pass the plates. In Nehemiah chapter 5, and if you're following along in the church Bible, you'll find us in about uh, page 401, somewhere in there. <clears throat> now there arose a great outcry of the people and their wives against their Jewish brothers. For there were those who said, there were several different faults here, there were those who said, with our sons and our daughters, we are many. Let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. There were also those who said, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses to get grain because of the famine. And there were those who said, third group, we have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. Now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers. Our children are as their children. We're all one people here, and yet we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but it is not in our power to help it. For other men, our own brothers, have our fields and our vineyards. What's going on? What's the, what's the setting in those first five verses? We learn something that's surprising. First of all, that God's big building program, 
This building of the wall and the hurry to do it, this seemingly impossible task, they'll never get it done, the opposition said, is not occurring at a time when God has abundantly provided resources. We might expect that as they're going, as they're getting ready to step into God's unbelievable task, that, that God is going to pour out the storehouses of heavens and there's going to be an economic abundance. There's going to be a windfall that is going to open the way for them to easily get it done. That is not the case. God's purpose actually goes forward here in the midst of difficulty, in a time of denial, at a time when the harvest have not been normal. They have not been what they should have been. The harvests have been less. The yields have been low. There's a famine in the land. And, and the famine is especially hard on those who are poor. Those who have less, those who are the, the family farmers that live harvest to harvest, kind of like paycheck to paycheck. They don't have a lot of reserve. And so when difficulty time comes, they are going to need to get some help from somebody. Now, these three groups that are, that are, 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 are indicated here, first of all, there's different impacts. In verse 2, we have, we're all here together. There are many of us. We have, I, have, I, I brought my wife to Jerusalem and our children, just like Nehemiah told us to do, that we're all living in the city now, and yet we can no longer eat our food from home. I used to be going home at night and getting my dinner there, bringing some food back when I came back in the morning, and now all of us are here for the safety of the city and all the workers, but there's no food here, and we don't have money to buy food. What are we going to eat? There's another group that they've had to give their fields and their vineyards to others in order to get food. The harvest was poor. They, the yield was small. They didn't have enough, and so they had to borrow in order to buy food. And in borrowing to buy food, they found wealthier people around them who were willing to loan them money at an interest charge, give us back a certain percent more, but not only that, give us control of your fields or your vineyards until you pay the loan back. Well, for that family farmer, how are they ever going to make an income that would allow them to pay the loan back if they no longer have use of their own fields or vineyards? There's no way they're going to pay that money back on a day laborer's wage. And so they're entrapped now in continuing poverty. There's a third group that the problem wasn't necessarily that they don't have enough to eat because of the, because of the um, famine. They had some reserves, but the taxes are so high that they've had to borrow money along the same lines to pay the taxes. You see, the taxes are set on not what the yield was this year. The taxes are set on what a normal yield is. And the king's always going to get his cut. And so if the harvest is low that year, that doesn't decrease the amount that goes to the king in taxes. That simply decreases the amount that you have left. And so they're not able to pay the tax. In fact, if the famine is severe enough, the tax that they owe would be more than they even got from the harvest, and so they have to borrow money in order to pay the tax. They borrow it again from their, from their, from their wealthier brothers in Israel. But this has ended up with them not only losing control of their fields, but having to sell their children into servitude in order to pay off the debt. And then sometimes those wealthy, those wealthy landowners who had some reserves, so they're seeing this as a financial opportunity. Doesn't everybody tell you when it comes to investments, buy low and sell high? 
Well, the time of a famine, the price of land is low. If you've got the resources stacked up and reserved, now's your time when prices are low. You can buy up the fields of others. And yet, where does that leave them? What's normal in terms of financial practice in this case is building the wealth of the rich on the backs of the poor. And some of those wealthier then having more, more servants than they can use, and so they're selling some of those servants back around to others in the land. As shocking as it sounds, there are now Israelites who are transferring that indentured servant contract. They are transferring that Israel servant over to the Samaritans and Sanballat. That's what's going on. It's shocking. It should not be this way. These are normal practices of the nations, but these are not the way that God's people should be functioning together. This is, this is contrary to God's law. God's law said, first of all, that when your brother is in need, loan to your brother, but do not charge him interest on the loan. Loan to your brother. You can charge interest to other people's, but to your own people, don't charge them interest. And not only that, but if you take collateral for the loan, don't hold anything in collateral that's going to harm or hurt your brother. Even so far as if you took his coat, I don't know why you'd take a coat as collateral, but maybe that's all that he had. But if that's what you took as collateral for the loan, give it back to him as night so that he's not cold. And so to keep their fields, to prevent them from from having another harvest and being able to pay back their loan, they are violating God's word. Remember when we saw in, in chapter 4 where they were to continue working, continue building what God had set before them together to do with blocks in one hand, laboring, building with one hand, and, and a sword in the other. Well, we are to walk that way. We're to walk in God's work according to the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. We are to live a way different from the way of the world around us. And that's the chief fault that's going on here. God's people are called out from among the nations into this one nation of Israel. They are called out and they are set upon a hill. They are a city on a hill, very literally, that they would be seen to the nations and they would be seen as different. God calls them to be different. That calls us, calls us to be different in the things that we do, the things that we don't do. He calls us to be different in our finances too. One other thing I would say here, just in the opening chapter, is debt is enslaving. Debt has started a spiral that these people cannot get out of. And that, that continues to be a problem in our society today. Um, we have done something called a Financial Peace University, a particular course of study that's intended to help you chart your path out of debt. And it might take you a year, it might take you two, it might take you three, but you can get out of debt, consumer debt and car loans and student loans and on it goes, piled up over you in a way that is suffocating. It takes away your freedom. And Proverbs says that the, the borrower becomes the slave of the lender. And that has literally happened here in Nehemiah chapter 5. I would say here that we don't have another um, financial peace university class on the schedule right now. But if you, if you find yourself, if you, if you can identify with some of the trouble here in Nehemiah 5, you find yourself in suffocating debt. That it, that, that it, it, is, it, it is a trap to you. You don't know how to make your way out of it. You need to run. You need to flee out of this as fast as you can. And we have 
people that have led those Financial Peace Universities before, that have, have helped people work through, make a plan, and get out of debt. If you would like that kind of counsel from someone here in the church that knows what they're talking about, even from their own experience, then just put on your communication card, just write debt counsel. Drop that in the offering, and we will just have one of those people get in contact with you and maybe plot some next step. Maybe, maybe you know somebody else that you know needs help. Let's get the conversation started of how we could do that. And debt is enslaving. We need to find our way out. This is why we as a church would never build, for instance, on a debt, assuming on tomorrow, presuming what's going to happen in ways that we cannot control. Avoid it. Get out of it. So the stuff of life will get in the way. Situations and circumstances happen, and sometimes God's people don't respond, don't do the things that God has in fact told us to do, and now they become distractions at best, more likely obstacles. This, this division that has emerged now has the potential to disrupt, to unravel the unity that they had together in the building that God had given them together to do. This could unravel everything. This could be the cause. This could be the reason that their enemies turn out to be right and that they'll never finish this wall after all. So as we turn to verse 6 in Nehemiah 5, Nehemiah 6 and verse 6 and following, we see the way toward being an example rather than an obstacle. Even when the stuff of light happens, and even if you yourself have gotten entangled in it, there's a way to be an example rather than an obstacle. Look at verse 6. I was very angry, Nehemiah says, when I heard this outcry and these words. I took counsel with myself. I like that. He was very angry. He was smoking hot angry. He was nostrils flared, spittle spewing, angry. And yet, he talks it over with himself first. He took counsel with himself. He took time to get control of his emotions. He did not respond in anger and rage. He didn't blow up at these people. He rather gave time to consider and counsel what is the best way forward here. How should we approach this? How should we address this? Because it's not a matter of simply pointing out what's wrong and you people better fix it. How can I chart a course that they could follow in and repent and be restored, and for us to again, as God's people, have unity together. Damage has been done. But the aim now is not knowing who to point the fingers at. The aim now is how do we restore it back together again, that we can continue together in unity, because Nehemiah needs all of these people. God's work needs all of us. We're told in Ephesians chapter 4 to guard the unity of the Spirit, which is the bond of peace. Unity together is something that we look after, we need to maintain, we need to take care for. Nehemiah takes counsel with himself. He doesn't respond in anger. That's a good first lesson. Wait, pause, pray. And now what he does next in verse 7, he says, I took counsel with myself, and I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. I said to them, he's very specific, what did they do wrong? You are exacting interest, each from his brother. That is the point of the law that is irrefutable. They cannot debate it. 
And I held a great assembly against them. And I said, we, as far as we are able, have brought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations. But you even sell your brothers so that they may be sold back to us. Here we are trying to redeem our brothers sold into slavery among the Samaritans, the Ammonites, and others, the Arabs. And, and you, instead of redeeming your brothers out of that slavery, you're selling them. So that we now have to come around and buy them back too. From these foreigners, from this enslavement that they've gotten caught up in. Nehemiah brings charges. He brings those charges publicly. He calls an assembly. He confronts them openly. He doesn't call them into the back room and say, listen, I heard something. Now, I don't know if this was true or not. You know, I don't even want to know. It's just you need to make this, find a way to make this go away, and let's keep it, let's keep it out of the gossip line. Let's keep it out of the newspapers. Let's just see if we can make this thing go away. No, he does it out in the open. Leaders among the society, the nobles among the society have, have, um, have misused and abused God's people in violation of God's covenant with them. They have done what was wrong. They have sinned. And it is critical here that leaders in a society must be both honored and held accountable. Because when you get to the place in a society where the people at large begin to perceive that there's a different set of rules for some of us as compared to the rest of us, then societal order begins to break down. And there's less leading and following and yielding and submitting and there's more rebellion and there's more dissension and it gets ugly from there. He, 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 he calls them out in public. He lays the charges clearly. This is what you've done. And he points to the root issue of it. Verse 9, the root issue is not, that's not the right thing to do. In fact, that's a violation of our, our agreed code that Moses gave us together as a people. No, it's bigger than that. The root issue in verse 9 is this. The thing you are doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies? Ought you not to be walking instead of, of fear in our God, of reverencing God, of putting his word before your own convenience or enrichment or preference? Should you not be walking in fear of the Lord? And as you don't, when you don't do what our God has said, the others around us know us. You know what? Sanballat knows the law. Tobiah knows what the Bible says. Both of those guys are close with the priestly crowd in Jerusalem. They know what Moses has said, and they know who's not doing it. And you know what they say? Yeah, you guys, you guys put up a good show, but you're no different than the rest of us. Think about the damage that's done every time you read about in the newspaper or see it on the news, hear about it from somebody, another pastor has fallen, has sinned, has taken advantage of someone has defrauded people, 
Every time one of those stories comes along, what does that do to your ability to talk to your friend, your neighbor, your colleague about the difference of the gospel, the reality of it, and the way that God does, in fact, transform lives? And they say, yeah, well, what about this? It's a distraction at best. It's an obstacle for others being able to believe that we would, he says, be scorned by the nations, the very nations whom we are to show God's glory to. That's the purpose of Israel. That's, that's their calling. That's their privilege to show God's glory to the peoples around them. They're not to be isolated and protected from the peoples around them. They're to show his glory that the nations may know. That's the same purpose he's given to the church today. That we have been called from darkness into light so that we might be lights in the midst of darkness. That's what God has given us to do. That's a privilege he has given us to be able to walk in. And he said, you, you have neglected that. But he has a solution for them. Nehemiah verse 10, first of all, he, he, it, they, they could have been doing it the right way. He, he gives them a subtle example which almost seems to be self-serving of Nehemiah. He seems to put himself in a positive light here, but there's something more than that that's going on. Verse 10, I and my brothers and my servants, that we are lending them money and grain, but let us abandon this exacting of interest. Nehemiah is saying, you know, it, this can be done without charging interest. This can be done without taking collateral. We also have been loaners to those who are in need. You think, well, there's Nehemiah patting himself on the back. No, actually not. I think this is a result of his pause, praying, taking counsel with himself. How do I not only confront what is wrong here, but how do I chart a path of restoration? Because he has just opened a way to go from shame to honor. He has shamed these other leaders. He has shamed these wealthy landholders by calling out a public assembly, pointing out what they have done wrong in front of everybody. He has publicly shamed them. And this is a shame-honor culture. And once they have now been shamed, how can they ever be restored? And there's where we live too. When I've blown it, and other people know it. And I have gotten in the way of others. I have been a distraction. Maybe I've been an obstacle to someone else's faith. Is there any way to overcome that? And the answer is God's grace. God's grace is greater than all our sin. God's grace is able to overcome and to restore and take those who are far off and bring them near. The solution that Nehemiah gives them, he says in verse 11, return to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, and their houses. All of those things you took as collateral that you should not have taken, give all of that collateral back. Hold no collateral against the loans. And he says, in the interest you have charged, whether it was in cash or whether that interest has been in, in proceeds, in, in wine and in oil and in wheat, give those interest charges, that 10% or whatever it is, give the interest back. That's what Nehemiah tells them. And then we get to verse 12. So Nehemiah has, has said, repent of your sin. Repent of your sin, turn from it, agree that it is sin, agree with God concerning it, confess it, and turn from it and restore that which was wrong. And as Jesus himself said, go and sin no more. 
In verse 12, they respond. Then they said, we will restore these things. We will restore the collateral that we had claimed. We will restore the interest that we had wrongly charged. And not only that, but this last phrase. This last phrase. And and require nothing more from them. Or we will seek nothing from them in return. The Hebrew's a little unclear, and so different translations will take it different ways. But my conclusion, even with, with what the, the structure of the passage and how it's going to close, is, is what they are saying is, we will we'll do what you say. We will restore the collateral that we claimed. We will give back the interest that we should not have taken, and we will seek no repayment from them. We'll seek nothing more from them. The loan has just become a gift. It is, instead of to be paid back a loan, it is a grant. Every, every college student knows how this works, right? Student loans, meh, not so much interested. Grants, a grant against the tuition. Now that I'll take, right? That's what they've done here. They've said, we have given them a loan and we're not going to ask for it to be repaid. We're not going to seek that payment from them. Nehemiah left that door open. Nehemiah put himself as the loner also level. They they were down here at the the, um, pawnbroker and loan shark and payday lender level. That's where they were, okay? And Nehemiah has put himself up here as the gracious brother-to-brother lender without interest in time of need. That's a good, solid place to be. That's the Moses place to be. But you know what they've done? They moved up here to the restoring back what we took down here. And not only that, but they have moved ahead of Nehemiah. Is there not a loner? They're a giver. You see what Nehemiah left open for them? Nehemiah left open the opportunity for them to be even greater than he. Nehemiah charted a course and he put it before them. In fact, he set them up for it by saying, we're also loners, announcing to them, and and we easily miss this because we're not from an honor-shame culture where, where, where honor is everything and to lose it publicly with no way to recover, they would be forever sidelined and they would easily become enemies of Nehemiah. They would resent him forever for doing so. But he set before them, in fact, he even put a signpost up. I'm going to give you a chance to be better than me in front of everybody. And they took it. They said, yeah, we're going to do that. They had the resources. We are going to give graciously to those in need instead. And now they're honored. Now, what are they remembered for among the people? They're not remembered as the one who took advantage in time of need. They're remembered as the ones who were confronted by God's word. And they said, we have sinned. And they gave graciously to those in need. And that's the turn that's going to be remembered about them. Nehemiah made a way. Now, is Nehemiah, why does Nehemiah do that? Nehemiah could have said what he is going to say next about how generous he is as well. But he does this in order that the congregation may be united again. That they may worship together again. Look at verse 13. I shook out the fold of my garment. I said, so may God shake out every man from his house and his labor who does not keep this promise. This is not merely a social pact among people. This is, a, this is a pledge before the Lord. This is worship together. All the assembly said amen and praised the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. When God's own character and grace is seen, that results in worship. When God's gracious 
loving kindness and mercy toward others is lived out among his people, it only results in worship of God. You see, this whole interest thing in the law, what's that all about? What's going on here? What is the law all about? James said it well. We talk about accountability, and so often we think of accountability in terms of, of things that I shouldn't be doing. And the law says, you shall not steal. Okay? You know what grace says? Now, why does the law say that? First of all, the law is not merely a code of rules to live by. The law is a manifestation of God's character. The law says, thou shalt not steal because God is not a thief. God does not take which he has no claim to. God instead made and gives that which we have no expectation of. God is not a thief, a taker. God is a giver. You see it? And so he tells his people, do not steal. But not only so, you you move over to to Ephesians chapter 4, and Paul says, let the one who did steal. Why? Because we are sinners. We fail. We walk our own way instead of God's way. Let the one who did steal, steal no more. Go and sin no more. But rather, let him labor working with his own hands, making something of value out of his own energy and effort and sweat and work and labor. Let him make something, labor with his own hands so that he might have something to give to those in need. What is it that that verse is describing? Not merely a better way than the law. It is calling us into our privilege of not merely living according to some, quote, Christian code of conduct, but rather that our greatest privilege is to show something of what God is like to one another and to others. That's the purpose of the church. That was the purpose of Israel, to let God's glory, his wondrous character be known among the nations. And you have the ability to show that to one another and to others. So even in the midst of sin, to step into, to lean into God's grace in confession and receiving of forgiveness, and then step forward in grace to others in need. You know what? We, I, I was going to give one example of that. I'll still go ahead and do it. I do not like buying and selling used cars. Don't like it. One of my least favorite things to do Well, one time when we sold a car, and the normal way this is done, you set a price that's higher than you expect to get. Maybe you can probably justify, well, of course the car is worth that way. It's my car, and I like it. It must be worth that much. You set the price, and then somebody comes, and they make an offer. And it's a silly, low, ridiculous offer. And so then you go back and forth, and you hem and haw, and you get to a point somewhere in the middle, and that's the agreed price, and you're happy, you're willing to sell it at that price, and they were apparently willing to buy it at that price, and so everybody supposedly goes away happy. Until, of course, the engine blows up, and then you're not happy anymore. You don't know what's going to happen with a used car. It's one of the reasons I hate selling used cars. At one time, we, we sold a used car, and... Somebody said, well, would you take this much for it? And we said, no. We would take this much less than that for it. 
Just had a little fun changing the whole normal practice of how cars are sold, first of all. And then, because, because it's a used car, and I, I, hope, I, hope it's, I hope that one was wonderful, but one never knows. But I wanted them to be better than happy about what they had paid for it, rather than grudging a little bit. Yeah, that Bob, he knows how to tighten the screws on making a good deal. That wasn't the way I wanted to walk away out of it. But then James comes along with this story this morning and just ruins me. Ruins my story. Here's a band of brothers that got together and said, here's a car. Yeah, that's a better story. Well done, guys. That's what grace looks like. And the church hears of it and says, praise the Lord together. And that's what's supposed to happen. And now we get a little more from Nehemiah. We get a little picture into Nehemiah. And this epilogue here for the chapter from verse 14 and forward is one of the reasons I say there's something more going on here. Nehemiah is doing more than just patting himself on the back that he's loaning people without interest because Nehemiah is also the giver. But he didn't point that out to them. He left room for them to outdo him publicly. But along the side, in verse 14, look at Nehemiah. Moreover, from the time I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year to the 32nd of Artaxerxes the king, 12 years of being their governor, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. The former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people. They took from them the daily ration of 40 shekels of silver. Now, we don't need to convert all of that into today's currency to realize that was obviously a heavy burden upon the people at the time, especially in a time of famine. And Nehemiah instead lived off his own resources. He lived, he lived off the income out of his own family's land. I don't know exactly how that worked, but he lived by his own resources. He did not lay the tax burden that the governor was allowed to cover the expenses of his household, his salary, his food allowance, his entertainment budget. He didn't do any of that. He didn't put any of that upon the backs of the people. Even their servants would lord it over the people, but I did not do so. Because of the fear of the Lord, I persevered in the work of this wall, and we acquired no land. All my servants were gathered there for the work. Nehemiah made it his privilege not to seek his own enrichment, but rather to actually expend his own resources for the good of these people as they united in God's work together. He used his resources to build up others. He considered others more important than himself. He looked not out for his own interests, Philippians 2, but for the interests of others. That was Nehemiah's example. If you want to find your inheritance, find your inheritance not in building up your own enterprise, but in seeking to eternally enrich others and help others pursue God's purposes for them. And there is where you'll find your own inheritance from God. Moreover, there were at my table... On my own dime, not on the governor's food allowance, on my own dime, at my table, there were not a hundred people like in Hyderabad, there were a hundred and fifty Jews and officials besides those who came to us from the nations around us. He said, Nehemiah, sometimes we give Nehemiah a bad rap that he's excluding others. Well, he's excluding them from God's work that God has given his people to build this wall. But he's not excluding others, he's inviting them in for dinner, in fact. In fact, Nehemiah gets a bigger table to invite more people into dinner. And one of the ways that we can be an example, not an obstacle, is to, by golly, get a bigger table. Somebody in the first hour elbowed her, her husband and, see, see, I told you we needed a bigger table. 
Well, I don't know if you need one as big as Nehemiah's, but let's talk about that having other people to your table. This is another way. The, the, the plate and the utensils, that's another way that we do build God's church, that we do build his kingdom. That art of hospitality has been fading in our culture. Let me give you just one brief example of that from when Julie and I were missionaries. And over the course of, course of several years, we came back for furloughs. We would, we would, we would um, visit each of our 21 supporting churches. And we would, uh, each time we'd go to our churches, we'd have interactions with folks. Okay, And this occurred over an extended period of time because each visit was about three years apart. Okay, We got to see changes that were occurring in the church culture of the same churches over that span as we had these multiple visits each three years apart, okay? Well, the first time, anytime we went to a church, we were always invited. Invariably, we, we, had, to make, we had to make room and make plans. We knew that we were going to be invited to somebody's house for dinner after church. We need to have that planned in our schedule. There might be other folks from the church there as well. They might make it into a party. We didn't know, but we were always going to invite it into somebody's home for dinner. It was wonderful. We ate well. You know, missionaries don't know where your next meal is coming from, so you always take one when you can. Well, the, well, the next time around, three years later, after, after being in our churches, visiting each church, presenting in the church, we would invariably get, normally, probably not every single time, but normally we got invited out to dinner. Rarely, only occasionally invited actually into homes. Much more commonly now, we were invited out to somebody. There was something changing. There was a pattern in the culture of hospitality that was just now changing and becoming different. Third time around, and I don't know if it was my message on those furloughs. No, no, if it was something else. Maybe the kids were just much bigger now and they ate a lot more and it simply wasn't affordable any longer. I'm not sure, but... More often than not, we went to our churches. Same churches had been supporting us all this time. Obviously, they loved us. But more often than not, we didn't get invited to dinner at all. They helped us pack up. Thank you for our time there. It was so good to see you again. And Lord bless you. And off we would go. And that was okay. It wasn't a matter of the dinner. We, we still ate that day. But you see how the culture had changed. And we saw it in quick glimpses over three-year intervals how quickly it was changing to say this. If you become practicers of hospitality, where normal is inviting somebody in, that'll be different. That might even be a little weird in a good way. The first century church was very good at being a, finding ways to be attractively different to be graciously generous toward others, and to share hospitality with them. Luke chapter 16, verse 9, Jesus says it this way, I tell you, make friends for yourself by means of unrighteous wealth. The wealth that we have in this world, the resources at your disposal, including your home and your table, your refrigerator, use these things to make friends for yourself so that when all of this fails and is gone, they may receive you into eternal dwelling places. Use the resources that you have at present to invite others into God's kingdom. Make friends. Invite them over. Wouldn't it be cool 
If it was normal on Sunday that you looked for somebody you'd meet at church, you looked for somebody new, or you looked for somebody that you needed to get to know better, and you planned on doubling your Sunday dinner that you had enough to invite somebody over. And if we got so good at that as a church that you went down the list and you tried your first choice, no, they had plans. You tried your second choice, had plans. Third choice, they had plans. By that time, the place was pretty much cleared out. And so it was either Bob and Julie or nobody. And so you said, well, we just go home then. But, but the, okay, you have leftovers and maybe you use those to, maybe you use that double portion then to, to take a meal to somebody during the week for somebody who has a reason for that. Or you just have leftovers later and you don't have to cook. It's a win, win, win. But what if we planned hospitality and looked for somebody to extend it to? Maybe it's, maybe it's better, maybe Bob's a little harebrained, maybe it's better to, to, to meet somebody this week and say, hey, next week. Give them a week notice, you know, to find a, a better offer or something. But, but what if we just reached out, extended ourselves a little bit, ate a little less ourselves so that we had something to share. And in that way, practice a generous hospitality that pointed people to God's goodness, God's generosity, God's mercy and grace. And Nehemiah does all of this. He doesn't charge the people for it. He doesn't collect the tag. I did not demand the food allowance. He says in verse 19, Remember for my good, O my God, all that I have done for this people. And I want to turn in closing to remind you again of Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 10. Nehemiah says, Remember God. Remember what I've done. Don't forget, Lord, you repay me. I'm not looking for taxes here. I'm not looking to increase my wealth now. I will give it away because I, I trust you to make it right. And Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 10 says, For God is not unjust to overlook or to forget your work and the labor of love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. As the chorus says, it will be worth it all when we see Jesus. And think about it this way. It'll be worth it even more when we see Jesus together. And there are others there because we did. Let's pray. Father, indeed, would you use us to extend your hospitality? Lord, would you use us, instead of being obstacles, to be examples of your grace and your mercy? Lord, uh, let us not only notice opportunities when they come, Lord, let us seek them out. Father, help us even in this week to make plans toward an opportunity to extend your generous grace to someone, to extend some unexpected kindness, some gift of mercy. And Lord, let them see not merely that we were kind to them, but Father, would you let them see by your Spirit's enlightening, would you let them see something of your grace and your goodness in it? Use us, Father, to show something of you to people around us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.